Okay, well, if there was a nonfiction follow-up to Three Body Problem, it would probably be this book. Yeah, although I don't know if uh, the author would agree with the Three Certainly Body wouldn't Problem. Certainly wouldn't agree yeah. with a lot of the stuff, <laughs> but I just mean thematically, yes. right, a, a continuation of some of that, th- this would probably be a, a, a contender. Yeah, no, it definitely. It's like the same theme with very different conclusions. Yeah. Two, two, three. I get, yeah, if we if we broadly take the theme as aliens and AI, yeah, oh, there's, there's yeah. really much AI in Three Body Problem. Actually, there's I, there's no aliens okay. in this one, and there's no aliens. Yeah. There's the opposite of <laughs> no, aliens. There's discussion of aliens. <laughs> so this is the aliens. opposite. <laughs> <laughs> this felt like a a sequel to Homo Deus, where Homo Deus is describing. Oh, yeah, that, the, that's a much better. Yeah. Homo Deus would be like the prologue to this book. Actually, it's interesting because we talked about Homo Deus for like two hours when we recorded it back in the day. But if we had read Homo Deus and this book back to back, I think with hindsight, I would probably say that the phase of the world that Harari describes in Homo Deus isn't really going to last very long. It sounds like we're really going to jump ahead to the Nova scene and so much of what AI has used for humans and all these things that James Lovelock talks about, we're going to get to that much more quickly. That was my impression yeah. leaving this. Like I was very sold on his hypothesis. Interesting, because I was, I was actually not. I was definitely more on the three-body problem Ooh. side of mm. this, where I actually don't think... So I think he... I actually like his Earth hypothesis a lot, the... We should we should probably like introduce them so people can follow and then we can Yeah, let's 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 introduce the hypotheses before we get into the debates. <laughs> Made you debate. The Gaia hypothesis, which James Lovelock, I believe, originated, right? He's the The book yeah. that we're covering today is <laughs> Yes. In case you can't read uh your title on your podcast player. Um, wow, okay. Neil is ready to just fuck shit up. I'm ready. Oh, I'm yeah. ready. Oh, um <laughs> is by James Lovelock, who's actually like I there were a lot of amazing tidbits on his life in this book, which we yeah. should get to. Those are good tangent, we'll tangent uh, fuel. <laughs> but he's the originator of something called the Gaia hypothesis, which is that the Earth is a living creature, basically, or a living thing, which is not just like a some kind of stable environment. Like we're not in this like Goldilocks zone, but Earth has like actively created the Goldilocks zone so that life could thrive. And it's like a very symbiotic relationship. Like life helps Earth thrive and Earth helps life thrive and it's a very i guess he calls it fragile right like relation like it's within a very specific temperature zone and a lot of his work has been around that and then how would you describe the novacine hypothesis is that human intelligence is about to not be the most intelligent yeah cre- humans he's won't be the most intelligent creatures on earth very soon he's basically arguing that the current epoch the anthropocene anthropocene is ending which, first of all, he acknowledges that we don't even have consensus on the fact that we are in the Anthropocene uh, yeah. as our current epoch, which is an interesting side note. But he argues that we are in that epoch where humans are converting energy into converting sunlight into energy and then uh, establishing the dominion over the Earth. And that the Nova scene beginning now is signified by uh, the technology that we have created moving beyond our control. Which I actually buy everything in the hypothesis so far. Like everything we've talked about so far, I actually agree with. I think we, I don't disagree that human intelligence probably won't be the most intelligent by the way that he defines intelligent creatures on the planet. Yeah, I I actually agree with all that part. It's, It's more like the downstream implications of like, we're the only life in the universe. Like a lot of those kinds of things. I think he's, um, I think he's like jumping to conclusions a little bit because you know, the whole three body problem thing of like not broadcasting your yourself yeah, to the rest of the universe. Yeah. It's like you, you can't really falsify or prove his theory right or wrong. But I just didn't see enough proof. And it could be because it's a short book. So that's like the other piece of context. This is probably one of the shortest books that we've ever done. Uh, right? I mean, I don't think we've done that many books. Yeah, that, that, like this uh, length. shortest. Yeah, that isn't an essay. Yeah, that's I mean, probably right, it, actually. It, I think we should... We should add like two other pieces of context here. <laughs> One is that he wrote this like with an assistant when he was 99. Yeah. Yeah. So, which is wild. I mean, this guy is old, <laughs> but is clearly like very sharp. Very and sharp. And talks about like, <laughs> yep. he talks about going hiking and doing all this stuff, which is super cool. And so when I see stuff like that, where he just says like, yeah, there are no aliens out there, guys, like 
here's some basic math. It doesn't make sense. Don't worry about it. In my head, I'm like, you had better things to do with this book <laughs> than to like try to explain that again. That's like, true. Like that's if we point. want the full details, that's probably like three books ago that you wrote, you know, 40 years ago. Like he has a passage in here where he talks about remembering stuff during World War II. Dude, he talks about <laughs> holding baby Stephen wild. Hawking. Yeah, baby Stephen baby Hawking. Baby Stephen Hawking. He held baby oh, that Stephen was Hawking. Baby Stephen Hawking? That was baby yeah, St- yeah. it was Stephen Hawking's dad. That Stephen makes Hawking's dad. So much more sense. I was <laughs> yeah. so confused why he was holding <laughs> Stephen Hawking. Dude, he was talking about experiments that he was doing in the forties. Like yeah. in the forties. Oh, and then he was like the he, physician, the head physician overseeing one of these experiments was a certain Dr. Hawking, who was Stephen Hawking's Dr. dad. Dr. Hawking, yes. So it's probably worth adding why the Gaia hypothesis is even relevant to the Nova scene, because they're actually two very distinct ideas. But the main tie-in, so human creates life that exceeds our own intelligence or creates technology that exceeds our own intelligence. And there is some transition phase where that technology dominates. And he speculates that it'll happen through military applications, which I, I think is kind of a sensible transition. Not sensible as like it's a realistic I, transition. I was gonna say I feel like we could take it just like one step back to explain like the three eras. Matt, you're such a good because then this is like, <laughs> this is Matt. You're 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 saving the episode. Here. <laughs> <laughs> we could just go full tangents. I just I, I really liked this book. I um, I did too. Yeah. I had a lot of fun with this one because <laughs> like the 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 whole like Anthropocene distinction. I I thought like was kind of weird to grok, but he explains it well here in this is on page 39. I assume we all have the same print where he basically says that like Anthropocene is the geological period when humans first began to convert stored solar energy into useful work. And so he's distinguishing that from, he doesn't give a name to the first stage, which was basically all of life up until 300 years ago. But he says that in that stage, the chemical process of photosynthesis enabled organisms to convert light into chemical energy. So like there was basically direct transmission from the sun into plants and then via plants into animals. And that was like the world that we lived in until coal is his argument. Like, like, cause we, we had wood. Actually, that's kind of a good question. I don't know why wood doesn't, like burning wood doesn't fit this. Like it's because we weren't creating useful work that could run independently without our supervision. That, that's sort of his distinction here, right? It's like we made steam engines, basically. And once we started making steam engines, we found more and more ways to turn stored energy into work. And then we will eventually get to the point where we're going straight from stored energy to information, that's the part that I thought was like a little unclear. Like he uses information in a funny way. Do you guys understand what he meant by that? A, lo- a little bit. I don't think I have a super firm grasp of it. Cause he basically theorizes that the final state of the universe will be the conversion of everything into information. And my interpretation of that basically is the primary function. So he was basically saying that you can model the entire universe as information. So every process that takes place can be modeled as information. And if you have some kind of sentient life or cyborg life, but intelligent life exploring the universe, it will be able to turn more and more parts of the universe into a having a primary function that is the storage retrieval or otherwise just dealing with information, basically like a giant computer was my interpretation there. I guess it's almost like he's saying that the biological piece of the process of going from solar energy to information is like a stepping stone that will slowly be, or, well, I guess this part's unclear. Like theoretically, it could eventually be removed and it could be pure, you know, non-biological entities doing it. But then his argument for the Nova scene is that there will be a necessary pact, I guess you'd call it, between us and super sentient computers yeah that's the gaia hypothesis tie where the reason super sentient computers wouldn't eliminate us is because they need us to keep the earth at a habitable comfortable temperature so i did not I buy this a, at all so no, no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> i'm ready to get after it <laughs> so that's what i was gonna say is that i don't buy that part of the hypothesis because oh. why would they need 
why would they need humans necessarily to do that? Because the Earth was doing just fine before humans. Like, it's not like humans created yeah, this. Any animal work? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, why? Did, maybe they won't eliminate other animals, but humans seem to be the biggest threat to their existence. Honestly, <laughs> like, I, if, right? Like, I don't know. I didn't buy that yeah, part of it. Yeah, like, yeah. No. I didn't buy that at all. Well, yeah. I mean, and then the part of the Gaia hypothesis that I thought was interesting. Like, I didn't. I, I guess I didn't know this aspect of like climate science before I read this book, which is the extent to which earth's temperature is actually like maintained by all the life on it. And he makes this point that we think about like habitable zones for planets in other solar systems. And so that we look really for planets nice, in yeah. a certain range. Yeah. But if you looked at our solar system, earth is not in that range. It's actually too close to the sun to yep. be like habitable. But the only reason it stays safe to live on is because there's all this life on it that is sustaining it through, you know, like adding all these other gases and whatnot to the atmosphere that help like keep it cool. And so his argument is that we have to like keep earth below a certain temperature for us all to like keep living here and be okay. And the machines will also need it to be below the same temperature. Yeah. Which which is I think where that part's fair. I think. It's like the part yeah. I didn't get was the l- jump from that to humans being necessary for that, I guess. Yeah, the, yeah. It's, it's a difference between you need a large amount of organic life to help the earth keep cool. Yep. And then you specifically need <laughs> the cast of Made You Think to remain alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could, we could be good pets. We could. He has that point <laughs> in there where he's like, humans could be like pets to the cyborgs, right? <laughs> it's like, we, we're, yeah, we're, we're entertaining but yes, I, I actually, sure. that was a new thing I learned as well, which is once the earth passes a certain like temperature threshold, which he defined as 47 degrees centigrade. I don't know exactly how he got to that number because he kind of presented it without evidence. Might be in a uh, past but, book though, just given some of the other ones. Yeah, I'm not discrediting yeah. it. I just, I didn't look at it. Honestly, it was, it was refreshing yeah. how little appeals to like actual data there were in this yeah. book. I was just like, you know what? I trust you. He's probably like, I'm James Lovelock. <laughs> like, I don't need to cite any Yeah, sources. fuck you. I got <laughs> but I built the, the Mars rover. <laughs> The piece being that if you pass that threshold, you can actually never bring life back to Earth. It's already gotten too hot. The conditions under which life were created are lost. So you now have to either preserve life or you lose it forever on Earth. You basically get these runaway effects with the ocean boiling or hitting. Not not exactly boiling. What did you call it? Like super, it's like a super state in between liquid and gas. Yeah. Yeah. Because like the, the magma on the ocean floor gets like hot enough. There's something, there's some crazy interaction he was talking about where you can basically never get the oceans back to a reasonable temperature for life. Yep. Yep. I, it was, it was interesting what he said about Caribbean waters and oh, life yeah. dying off. Like I didn't, I didn't realize that that's why that water is so light blue and like why the reefs die. And there's actually this very clear temperature, like above 15 degrees centigrade. Like life just can't really live in water for very long. Uh, I didn't realize the cutoff was that significant. There's a really good book actually about this by the same guy who wrote Breathe, James Nestor, called Mm -hmm. Deep. It's the book he did right before Breathe, and it's kind of free diving. Yeah, it's about free diving, but then like that's like really just the intro to it, or like the first part to it, and then it goes into like deep ocean exploration stuff, which is really interesting. Sweet, and just it, it talks a little bit about what's in this book where he says like how little we know we know actually much more about other planets like mars than we do our own like deep ocean stuff like it's actually kind of it's actually kind of crazy it's like a true alien world like we just we've never mapped a lot of it we've never like there's no light down there whatsoever which makes photography and like cameras really really difficult to even send down there whereas you know in space you actually do have some sources of light so you, you, in a weird way, it's actually harder to do the ocean exploration stuff than it is to do uh, some of the space things that we we've done. Plus the pressure. Plus the yeah. pressure is like easier enormous. to be in zero pressure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved his little digs in the book. <laughs> I was just like just again, gonna... again, classic like cantankerous, <laughs> but deserves it, old guy. Like just throwing in digs, being like Elon Musk is dumb for wanting to go to Mars, like. 
we could try to live on Antarctica first, but nobody's trying to go there. We don't know anything about the ocean, right? <laughs> like, he even talked about working on a Mars lander in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. To look for yeah, signs He did work for NASA. Yeah. He said that that was basically how... It sounds like he retired at a reasonably young age because of uh, the work he did for NASA. Yeah. And like, yeah. He, he, so, he built, so he knows what he's talking he about. built I think, sensors. It's not like he's yeah. just bullshitting about like, yeah, oh, I'd rather you explore the ocean. It's like he was part of the space exploration stuff. Well, he, yeah, he built the sensors for extraterrestrial life. Yep. Yeah. Like, that was just such a neat, it's like, oh, okay, you're, you're pretty qualified to talk yeah. about this. <laughs> the cool thing with his extraterrestrial life story was not only was he involved in it, he was actually fighting NASA on how they were trying to detect life. So yeah. They were specifically looking for life that looked like life on Earth, so like carbon-based life. And he was telling them, that's not the way you should do it. You should look for reductions in entropy because mm. life organizes entropy. I loved that there was kind of like a, there was like a subtle dig there at the biologists at NASA where he was, because it was like he was fighting with the biologists and he was basically saying that like, you guys don't need to be here. <laughs> you can go home. <laughs> oh, wait, he didn't say that the, explicitly in the book, but. On the topic of digs, that. the Elon Musk quote. Pioneer and would-be spacefarer Elon Musk has said he would like to die on Mars, though not on impact. Martian conditions suggest death on impact might be preferable. (laughs) (laughs) It would actually be far less cruel to allow him to build prison cells on the ice cap of Antarctica. At least the air is breathable. (laughs) He's not wrong. Is that wrong? Is that wrong? Actually, so an interesting... Not really tangent, definitely related to the the book is, so his point to the biologist, I think is a really good one. I think extending that to like something like three body problem, uh, like taking some of the stuff from three body problem. If you look for extraterrestrial life, I think even looking at it as a carbon based life, life form might be wrong, potentially. Mm. Like, cause what if it was a sufficiently advanced civilization and it's electronic and it's silicon? Well, that's what you say. Right. Is you should do yeah. for reductions in entropy. Yeah, that's kind of the only way to do it, I think. Like, whereas I think a lot of like the SETI stuff and like a lot of the other uh, efforts have been like basically looking for life on Earth in some in yeah. another place. Which, if that was the case, I would say you could almost make the argument. It would actually bolster the argument for the like I forget what that theory is, but like where life first came to Earth on a comet. You heard about that one? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. Like it was seeded mm-hmm. from somewhere else, not necessarily on purpose, but it was like seeded on Earth. It was. I love that theory yeah. because it's such a cop out. It's like we know where it came from. It just hitched a ride here, right? In a car. And then it's yeah, like, where did that else. come from? It's like there's a lot of yeah. I mean, it doesn't like, answer the question. No more questions. No, it doesn't answer the question. <laughs> That's kind of a cop out too, right? It's like it's like okay, well, where did the big? I, I think from? I think basically <laughs> if you found it somewhere else, it'd be like it would it would bolster the argument for like it came from somewhere else, whereas if I don't know. I feel like I actually think his theory here, like this is another thing I actually agree with is the like if there was a sufficiently advanced civilization, it probably doesn't look anything like biological life forms that we're familiar with. Yeah. I mean, the the point he made about time scale, I think, is really good, too, Mm -hmm. where if you think about humans as an identifiable species really only existing on Earth for, I mean, like 300 years. Yeah. Yeah. Right, like it's only been these three hundred odd years that somebody looking at Earth from space could notice that there's like, oh, there's a some sort of like intelligent species like having an impact on the planet, right? And then you know, universes what thirteen billion years old, call it like six billion of that planets could have maybe formed and had stuff on them. Like fine. the odds that you would overlap, especially when you account for like so relativity of light hitting us from everywhere. Yeah basically zero also the concept of years is so fascinating because it's so based on our own sun and our own orbit around the sun yeah, and our own too. lifespan so there's a book this is on earth right so hidden life of trees is a great book we, we never did on made you think yet but it's a great book where trees have like a social life and like they communicate with other trees they just do it on a time scale that is actually like to us feels like they're just plants like they're not doing anything because they do it yeah. so slowly <laughs> But their lifespans wow. are so much longer. Like their lifespans, like in a natural form, a lot of these trees could be like 500 years old, 600 years old. It's like to them, you know, they don't have to move. So they don't have to, you know, 
be on the same timescale that a human lives on, but they're doing pretty complex operations just on a much slower timescale. It's a, it's a real ant moot. All right. See y'all next week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's just, it's interesting to think about like how influenced our own ideas of time even are from, are just based on our own life. Like we think like a hundred years is a long time, but if there was a, another civilization on another planet that that's orbit took, you know, a hundred years around its sun, maybe those creatures live for 10,000 years to us, like relative to us. And then they see our 300 years and they're like, huh, weird. Like this thing just started, like what's going on on this planet? You know, it was was interesting. His observation that you kind of move at the speed at which your mind kind of processes comfortably. So he was like, if you have a really intelligent cyborg flying to Australia, it'll feel like a 3000 year flight to them because they just (laughs) think so quickly. Yeah. And that's the opposite thing, right? Where she brought brings up in the book that a sufficiently like an AI type civilization, electronic life based civilization might not need to trap like they might not feel the need to travel in an interstellar type of way because it's like those journeys are even longer <laughs> for something that thinks that fast. Yeah. So yeah. It's it's kind of like uh permutation city, right? Yeah. You can just keep speeding up and kind of like infinitely, you know, you've got this like hyperbole. I was talking to Chat GPT about this now that we have GPT four turbo and dangerous and man. you can have uh <laughs> I was very polite. I I was has that been activated for you? I mean, my responses are so much faster, so I've just assumed. Mm. Which one? The new, uh, the new update. Yeah, it was. Pretty sure it was. It went live. Yeah, that's what I thought, but I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure. Oh, maybe I am. It's quite a bit faster. So. Yeah, yeah. It's faster. It talks to the internet. It does a lot of cool stuff now. But I actually, Nat, I had the same thought as you with Permutation City, where I was having a little back and forth with my friend chat GPT. And I was just like, why would, why would the, cause the assumption that the cyborgs would even be interested in the physical world. Yeah. It's pretty bold assumption. I think James Lovelock's point would be that the, they care about the physical world because they have to maintain their own environment, but only to the Within amount the necessary yeah. that they can like, yeah. you know, plug themselves in and be okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they don't need that many humans no. in order to, like, you know, keep the servers running if something goes wrong. And <laughs> Well, thinking about what was in uh, Where Is My Flying Car about the nanobots, like, the nanobot yeah. stuff, like, do they even need humans? Yeah, yeah that, that's actually a good point, right? <laughs> like, it seems like they could manufacture themselves out of that problem relatively quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there is almost, like a problem here where if there is not sufficiently advanced enough hardware attached to a sentient software, then it could just be trapped. Right. Like, like if there were a truly sentient AI, like Skynet today, like there's no robots that it could control to like do significant things in the world outside of a factory. Right. Like, it could drive some Teslas around, <laughs> but if, if like, it could down, use armed drones to like force people to do stuff. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like there'd have to be some humans, right? Like it could definitely enslave people yeah, to a certain extent, I see what you're but saying. like it yeah. couldn't really, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Like it's still, you, you, you have to get the robotics, the, the humans yeah. have to get the robotics to a certain point <laughs> before so the AI can like actually take over. You need uh, your like at home Tesla bot that walks exactly. on two feet or your Boston dynamics. Mailman. I mean that. That's why the the Tesla bot being overpowerable by a, what did you say a, a, a like hundred pound person or something was the strength test they were going to use for it. Like it's not a terrible idea. <laughs> not a bad idea, but you yeah. just got to give that. Make sure it doesn't have opposable thumbs and can't pick up a gun because <laughs> a great equalizer is you know. It's actually a great point. No matter how much you yeah, weigh. Yeah, maybe, maybe we shouldn't yeah. be building those in Texas. <laughs> yeah. Let's build the Tesla bots in japan <laughs> <laughs> i did find his prediction though that the way the sentient ai software would reach hardware would be through military applications and that's yeah. both an area where it almost doesn't really matter if things go wrong and also from a like does the ai work standpoint and if the ai works too well and things go wrong it's like the costliest playground 
there was a bad AI movie about this like 15, 20 years ago <laughs> where it was like a, like a fighter jet that they developed like an AI pilot for. And then, you know, like three, like Tom Cruise ask Maverick fighter pilots had to go chase it down and fight it to the death. We have to watch Sorry. this movie. Was this stealth? Oh, stealth. Wow. You found that quick. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. fast. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Google.com. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Oh yeah. Five out of 10 sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie Foxx is in it. Yeah. I think his thing, his point about pilots was pretty interesting too, where he was saying how we've done it up to now has been pilots, sorry, like AI pilots basically. And then they'll throw the human pilot into like the worst situation when the, the three AI pilots can't, don't agree. The three autopilots don't agree on what to do. And instead they were talking about, or he was talking about like the new approach might be doing like what they did for the go playing AI where it just kind of learned how to play on its own. It wasn't mm. it wasn't trying to mimic a human behavior. It was it kind of like started from the ground up. Well, those are two separate things, right? It was one is how you teach it and then the other one is at what point if the AI fails yeah, do yeah, you yeah, let yeah. the human intervene. Right? Yeah, cuz I think the way it's been the Tesla does that too. Tesla will just be like, "Whoops." Yeah, that's <laughs> like, oh, "This is your problem." Yep. And you're like going yeah. into a barricade. Yeah. <laughs> like, thanks. That's Elon. <laughs> Yeah, which seems like a pretty inferior approach, especially like as time goes on and we see more and more of these examples of AI teaching itself and how honestly superior that approach is. Well, didn't Tesla say they scrapped all of the old full self-driving training and had it like retrain itself doing the new, you know, whatever, similar to what LLMs do, whatnot. They just like... They, they built an entirely new model and had it start from scratch on all the training data they had. And it was like a pretty significant improvement. I don't think I'm making that up. Uh, I don't know that part, but I did see a video on, I think it was Twitter a few weeks back of a Tesla driving itself in an area without roads. It was like on the edge of a oh, lake. Wow. And they were oh, basically cool. just saying, because it's not, I don't remember all the details of what, how they comparing it to like Cruise and Waymo exactly, that have to train right. on roads. Yeah. There's no lane lines. There's no asphalt. It just knows this is water. These are trees. So you just got to stay between. Yeah. Dude, every time I see a Cruise or a Waymo driving around, they look so stupid. How does it have all this <laughs> on the roof and like, you know, 10 huge cameras on the corner. And like, then you've just got a Tesla with its little itty bitty cameras doing just as well. Yeah. I don't know. Dead companies. Dude. Yeah. Tesla. It's like, I I know you didn't end up buying one. You you were borrowing one, but it's like, it's very hard to go. Like, I don't know if I could go back to like a non. Dude, Dude, ours is still in the shop. It's been six weeks. No. That is one of the things that's annoying about it. It, 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 that wasn't because it was Tesla. That was because oh, okay, every okay. shop in Austin got overloaded from the hailstorm. Oh, with the hailstorm. I told you guys about that, right? Yeah, yeah, with the hailstorm. Yeah, I saw yeah, the pictures. Yeah. They looked, looked rough. Dude, it, it's turned into like a, a total fucking mess because like so we, we don't even know what's going on with the Tesla yet, but for our sedan, State Farm came out and said it was going to be a $6,000 repair. And then we took it to the shop and they're like, they're like, no, this car is totaled. <laughs> they're like, this is a, this this would be twenty one thousand dollars if we were to repair it. There's no way <laughs> this could be done. So then they had to like fight with State Farm and State Farm had to go back out there and State Farm was like, No, it's their team. They're like, No, it's not. So they're back out there again. It's been sitting there for like three or four weeks and they haven't been able to touch it yet because they're just fighting over this. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a photo? <laughs> Uh, somewhere. Yeah. I can send you guys after. Oh man. Are you, um, Nat, do they have Tesla insurance at, in Texas yet? They do. We don't have it just because we like bundle everything. Yeah. You have other cars and like other things to, to put into it. Yeah. With the house. With the house and- yeah. I switched to it last year from progressive is what I was on before, which was like not bad. Mm-hmm. But when I called progressive to tell them, you know, like usually they try to keep you right. If you like call to like cancel, they were like, oh, yeah. well, you know, did you sell the car or did you switch insurance companies? It's like, no, I still have the car, switch insurance companies. They're like, oh, what did you switch to? And I was like, Tesla. And they're like, yeah, we can't compete with the rate that they that they gave. <laughs> they didn't even try. They didn't even ask me what the rate was. That. They just yeah, didn't even try. Sick. 
Because basically what <laughs> Tesla does, right? It's an adjustable, yeah, right. <laughs> it changes every month based on your driving. So if you're like uh, driving a lot, cool. it charges you more. If you drive worse, like if you have like forward collision, like the car is stopping itself because you're about to crash into yeah, somebody, yeah. it dings you, you get like a safety score. It's based on basically wow. two things, a safety score and then how much you drive. So like, let's say you're traveling what? and you're not really driving, your rate might be like $50 for the month. And if you're driving cool. a ton and you're driving really badly, it might be like 150 that month. So it can like really change. Um, mine's been like hovering with like decent amount of driving. It's been hovering around like 80 a month, which is almost half of what I was paying progressive. Yeah. The, and what the, all does it track? Does it track like speed? speed does it track? It, it tracks like a bunch of stuff. So like the big, the variables are like driving without a seatbelt is a big no, no. Like you're more likely to get like uh, bodily damage, right? If you're doing that or any passengers in the car driving without a seatbelt speed but it only dings you if you're going above 85 for a sustained amount of time so you can like speed up and it won't ding you uh and then come back down to pass somebody. set the autopilot to 84 baby. Yeah. let's go <laughs> yeah so they don't really actually weirdly they don't use speed very much which makes me think speed is actually probably not a huge factor for accidents at like a reasonable level hmm. but it dings you for like autopilot disengagement is a big one where it's like if it's on autopilot and it tries to make you take over because you're not touching the steering wheel for an extended period of time hmm. For yeah. for like and it does it like where it force it force disengages autopilot that dings you a lot because it's like you're probably watching a movie or something. Yeah. The the hard turns like the g forces on the turns ding you. There's like a few variables which are like wow. they hurt you more than others. But anyway, there's like a score that's like a zero to a hundred score on a, on safety and then how much you drive because it's it's like how well you drive times like how much you drive right. If you don't drive very much, <laughs> yeah, even if you're yeah. a bad driver, you're probably less likely to get into an accident. And they have all the data because it's a so freaking cool, Tesla. Though. I love, yeah, I love that mental picture of you like calling the insurance agent. You're like, why was my rate so high? <laughs> like, your G forces last month were through the roof. <laughs> well, and that's the other thing with Tesla. Asshole, you don't really <laughs> even have like, a, I mean, you don't really have like an agent with with the Tesla with that. the The reason they can do the rate so low though has almost nothing to do with that. It's because mm. they, it's because they're the ones doing the repairs on their own cars. Right. So like the margin that goes into margin so much better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think like that's really the main the main reason they can Dude, price it the way they do. There, there's kind of a like a semi like a 1984-esque thing with Tesla uh, full self-driving that I feel like most people don't realize or else it, or it, it seems like it should be bigger news. I don't know. But it, there's an internal camera in the car that looks at you to see if you're looking at your phone. And it disengages the autopilot if you're looking at your phone or you're like distracted by stuff. And like on the one hand, it is not it's not just you touching the wheel. If you like like you can try this in your Tesla, right? Like just look down at the corner for a few seconds or whatever, it'll kick you out really quickly. Hmm. And No, you're right. Cause if you're looking at the road, it it doesn't even if you're not touching the steering wheel, it still will It gives you a lot longer. Yeah, yeah. You're so right, actually. Wow. And so your, your car is literally watching you and deciding whether or not you get to keep like driving, right? Have you guys tried wearing sunglasses with like eyes painted on them so that... Oh, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> I get, get the Facebook lenses, right? Yeah, I don't know how it works with sunglasses. Maybe you have sunglasses and you like keep your head straight and you're kind of like looking down at your phone. <laughs> like you're in school, like back in the day, trying to text. Yeah, phone. exactly. <laughs> You've got mirror lenses to like make your make one eye look down. <laughs> oh man! But yeah, it's like how I, I I had never heard about that until I realized it playing with like our car. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's wow. Um, I mean, it makes sense. It actually yeah, makes total sense now that you're. It does make it. sense. Yeah. It makes sense, and. I'm surprised more people aren't like wigged out about their car having a camera in it that's watching them. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It's like, I don't know. This might be a function of like getting older. I feel like that would have pissed me off when I was younger a lot more than it does now. Now I'm like, ah, there's probably a reason. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I'm not doing anything that bad in my car. Also, the car, the I don't know. I hate. I hate to keep pounding on this, but it's like. It's just such a damn good car. Like I, it is a great car. I just don't know how I could like. Oh, I like definitely when we get a second car, probably next year. I like it wouldn't be a Tesla for the second car, but part of me is like, why not? Like 
I probably do want a gas car as the second car, just because there are some annoying things about even with the long range Model Three that you're like, mm-hmm. even on decent like moderately long drives, you're like, ah, I still got to deal with the charging thing, which is kind of annoying. And gas is just so readily available everywhere that like I do see the value of having a gas car, but at the same time, it's going to be hard to go to a gas car. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, man. <laughs> All right, we should probably get back to the book. We should probably move on, move on from the evil Elon Musk. I heard, I heard he won't give Starlink to Hamas, so he's a bad guy now. Did you Wait, we're that saving that. Thing? We're saving that for two episodes from now. <laughs> oh man, I'm not the only one who saw that nonsense, right? No, I didn't uh, see this. I did not. I did not see this. Uh, okay, well, that you, you can basically I I imagine what it was. Yeah. <laughs> I think I got the idea. Well, I'll bring us back with one other dot that I had. Yeah, bring us back. I loved his section on speaking being a bad interface for transmitting uh, information. Yeah. It's linear, so you have to present things in a particular order, and linear means it has to follow some amount of reasoning, so you lose any capacity for intuition, which when you have multiple simultaneous inputs, you are able to intuit things. And do you guys remember the arrival? Like the whole premise of the movie was you had this non-linear method of communication. Yeah, yeah. So he was speculating that cyborgs will not speak, they will intuit, which I think he's he used intuit and telepathy, but I think it's just whatever the fancy engineering word is for, got a multiple signal input sensor, whatever. It reminded me of, uh, I'm trying to think if there's another reference so that I don't have to invoke teleb, <laughs> but that's the only one that's coming to mind right now. I, I think I think this was an anti-fragile where he was like making fun of Socratic dialogue because mm. you know like in the in the Socratic dialogues right the Euthyphro right Socrates mm. basically saying okay but like what is piousness Euthyphro like tell me what it means to be you know holy and Euthyphro says the thing and he's like ah but what about this and Taleb is like I basically would have just punched him and said I know what it means right I don't need to like put it into a, a strict logical order for you for it to make sense and like it. I, he's sort of saying the same. Lovelock's sort of saying the same thing here that like you can know things and like understand things without being able to directly communicate them, and it's like a it's like a scary idea for such a science based society. But I think it's also something kind of like deeply true that more people are resonating with. But it's also partially because he's using the word intuition. You could say it for an objective thing like hot or cold, right? I can feel hot or cold Mm. instantly but in the time it takes like the words per minute at which i speak or the words per minute at which i write or read is definitely slower than just touching you know a hot pan on a stove which is what he's calling intuition here yeah well i uh you i'm sure you've seen this stuff neil i'm sure it was in fighters mind too but like stuff on how quickly fighters can react to the like the opposing fighter and they've measured all of this stuff. And it's something like, even though it takes 120 milliseconds for your brain to like send a signal to your fist for it to start moving towards their face, fighters can do it in like 40 or 50 milliseconds or yeah, something. From like your eye because to your there's brain some like, to your fist, I think. Wow. Yeah. And it's way the, the faster The time it would that. take for that signal, exactly. So there's like, they're, they're sensing the other person's movement before they even make the movement and can react to it before their brain can even process like there's just like or before their conscious mind at least can even process it there's all of these things that we do there's probably he he had that he brought it up in the book about the parallel processing thing like there's probably because of survival benefits there's probably reasons why these like parallel processing tracks started and maybe it was like prey versus predators like prey could react faster and or they had to react the ones that reacted faster survived so like that trait kind of got passed down but yeah it's crazy some of that some of that stuff's wild uh to see or even like with um the bee the bees example that he was giving about like bees and termites and stuff like yeah. how they oh, evolved yeah, yeah. their their structure i mean they don't have like written codified like laws right but they they've created like a monarchy or a totalitarian structure honestly like intuitively i guess is kind of the way that these are it. so cool yeah. He mentioned something in passing that I highlighted, and I was like... About bees playing football? Yes, 
Yeah. Yeah. What was I was that? like, I wish there was something. I didn't look it up either. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't look it up. Hold but on. I'm going to look it up right now. <laughs> I was like, no way. Oh my God. Yeah. What? Bees learn how to play soccer. Yeah. He, he meant soccer, not American football. No, that's what I meant. I assumed um, he meant that. Yeah. But it was like. Yeah. No, there's a bunch of YouTube videos on it. That is. Scientists used their pheromones to teach them how to play soccer. <laughs> I think I think the point he was the point he was making in that section, which I think is interesting, is like again our view of intelligence is like very human centric. Like it's like it's a brain and you know a brain and a body. And I think his point with the bees was yeah. like the intelligence is actually you can almost even think of the bees almost like neurons themselves in a way like they're that's they're, sort of what a hive mind is yeah yeah right? like they're like, units of intelligence as opposed to like yeah. each bee might not be like hyper intelligent on its own but then like the hive mind is actually pretty super intelligent well in his analogy of like bee hives to human cities and the efficiency and like innovation that comes from humans like congregating into one place and our own like hive mind aspects i mean i, I feel like part of that's coming into the gaia theory aspect too right it's like well we're all just different manifestations of like life arising from solar energy and then contributing to like the rare planet in different ways. Yeah. I don't want to take us back to, I, I tuned out for two minutes. I apologize. I was looking at bees playing soccer. I knew you. I don't want to, <laughs> to rain anyone. It feels like I could kick these bees ass. <laughs> uh, even though it's been 10 years since I've played, I'm pretty sure. Uh, <laughs> they, didn't teach them how to play soccer. They taught them how to move something to a area where they got, if they moved to that area, they got a reward, but then they made the okay, thing a soccer ball. And then, <laughs> I know. I know. I'm sorry. I have to take it away from you. I was just really bombed. I was really excited to see a video. Okay. That, that's <laughs> the thing like, I wanted that's, to see that's kids was soccer. two bumblebees. Two year olds play soccer. This that, is it wasn't, I'm not it. taking it away from you. It was taken away from me. Okay. I wanted to see two <laughs> bees. I wanted to see them fight over a ball. <laughs> deal. don't you have your meeting now? <laughs> I do actually. So. <laughs> I'll see you guys next week. <laughs> All right. Now we can have some fight fun deal. conversations without fact checkers. Yeah. Now we can fight. go back yeah. to talking about bees playing soccer. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Uh, how much we love our Teslas. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I wonder though one thing that's interesting about this with the hive mind idea is like would the ais all roll like would there be like a supremacy of the ais like one ai wins and every interaction <laughs> with that ai is just like another chat window into the same ai or is it like or like, and I'm talking like yeah, AGI, they be competing. not not ChatGPT. Like, yeah, like yeah, AGI. Yeah. Or are there going to be like multiple like personalities and like power struggles? Like, that's another interesting one. Yeah, and and how would those even manifest? Right. I mean, because right. it when Lovelock talks about sentient AGI in Novacine, he uses this term cyborgs, which he seems to use to refer to any kind of robotic entity that is imbued with AGI that can operate like independently in the world. It doesn't have to look like a human. Um, it doesn't have to be like an Asimov cyborg. It could, it could be like a nanobot like we were talking about, but yeah, there, that question of, <laughs> could there be like an, an American AI and a Chinese AI? And like, what does that conflict look like? Or is it just that wherever one first develops, it starts radiating out I mean, it, it, you, you kind of have like network connectivity things here, right? Like if, if a sufficiently advanced LLM or something like suddenly like blipped into self-awareness in a Azure cluster in wherever Microsoft keeps their servers, like it couldn't, it couldn't necessarily go take over a bunch of AWS servers, or maybe it could, maybe it could figure out how to like hack into them, right? Like it's sort yeah. of hard to... You know, it's hard to game so like, theory that like what would actually because what would it even look yeah. like? Like I don't even not look right. like, but like its behavior look like. like I don't even. Yeah, and because you would like, arguably yeah, you it might try to keep itself hidden. Well, yeah, I, I think it would, but it would need computing power to do all the right. It's like LLMs as they are right now take such an incredible amount of computing power, and yeah. so you would you would see it right spinning up more of its own processes i assume right like and if they're 
And so it could, it could only recursively self-improve for a very short time before it just ran out of processing power, even if it like took over every server in the world, right? But as soon as that happened, you could just shut it off. Like there, it's kind of goes back to this problem of like, like the, the, the tech has to get sufficiently advanced for it to actually become an issue, right? Right. It's like you can only send 50 GPT-4 messages every three hours because it's so expensive for them to run. Right. And it can like barely write a kid's book. So yeah, like we're still clearly a ways off here. As cool as it is, yeah, I know it's yeah. Also, there's a whole there's a whole like like zero to one question here too about AGIs because like it's super powerful. Everything that like ChatGPT has done and like uh, like it it's also crazy like the speed of progress that they've made. But I think like there's still the question of like is it like a linear process to get to AGI from here? Or like, is there almost like a primordial soup type like situation where it just like spontaneously arises? Like, like what is the, yeah. Yeah. I guess it depends on how much of it is hardware and software driven. Right. Right. Cause like right now it seems like it's both. Yeah. Right. Like the software is getting better, but the hardware is also improving a decent amount and has improved a lot. Like, that, that ga- gamers and Bitcoin miners Dude, got 100%. us to AI. It's <laughs> yeah. so wild. It's like that, those are the only people who bought NVIDIA rigs until like three years ago and they were making them better and better for Bitcoin mining. Yep. <laughs> now suddenly I, it's all AI. I also, have this, so I also have this theory that I've been like through some of the, the work I've been doing, I've been more deeper into like the nuclear energy space, cool. which I for won't... True health? Uh, not for TrueMed, this is for Activate. We're working with a, a company in the, the nuclear energy space and it's without giving away like too much it's like hot it's like pretty deep in the future type nuclear stuff um like still probably a few years out from commercialization but the thing that's interesting is like every company now uses or, like they look at crypto mining as a as particularly bitcoin as like a way to deal with like when energy prices are low how they can still monetize yeah. their production capability so in a yeah, weird yeah. way i actually think so it's like Bitcoin mining and gamers got us to AI. I think Bitcoin miners... To AI and energy No, I was going to say Bitcoin <laughs> miners actually could be like actually one of the things which would which are going to drive like energy creation, which if we go back to like, where's my flying car is like one of the gating functions for like this futuristic society is like we just don't yeah. produce actually enough energy today for a lot of things that we want to be able to do or could do. Well, have you heard about... You might actually know more about this than I do. Gas flaring. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the oil, like in the they, natural like, gas. Like, I don't know a ton about yeah, it. I yeah. just know that they're using it for Bitcoin mining or some companies are. Well, yeah. So, I, like, historically, if there was, like, natural gas extractors that had an oversupply, they would just have to, like, burn the gas yeah. to get rid of it. It was, like, awful for the environment. And, it's like, like lose-lose situation all this for shit. everybody. They're not monetizing yeah, yeah, it. They're still polluting like it's just bad yeah yeah so these companies have figured out how to hook bitcoin miners up to yeah those those rigs so that whenever they would otherwise have to flare gas they can actually just use it for bitcoin mining which is at least yeah and the thing better than just shooting into the atmosphere you brought this up on a past episode which was i think smart which is like if we ever figured out a use a use for co2 like yeah. It would be like like a non-problem very quick. It might even be a problem oh the God. other way. <laughs> Go, you know. Yeah, exactly. We'd run out of C2. We'd be like, we need fewer plants. Yeah. Kill all the plants. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because it, it does seem like within our lifetime, someone will figure out how to harvest carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then print carbon structures from it. Like, that's going to happen. I mean, it seems right? like something I, that would... I mean, it'd be, yeah. I have a hard time imagining why. It, like, cause after reading Where's My Flying Car, I just, I'm sort of like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, exactly. Like, I don't know who, like, they'd probably have no problem with getting funded either. There's probably so many companies that would, like, yeah. governments and VCs and the stuff. The question like, is, what would you build? You could build, yeah. like, graphene, right? Isn't graphene just carbon yeah, graphene, diamonds, better? they're all carbon-based, like. Oh, true. Yeah, you can make yeah. diamonds. You need, uh, what's the company? brilliant earth oh yeah brilliant earth should get into the carbon capture business there might just not be enough carbon like co2 is just one carbon atom so it's like yeah yeah it's funny how little co2 is actually in the i mean it's a lot relative to i guess where it used to be but yeah but the air is like what's 80 percent nitrogen and then 
It's like 19% oxygen, oxygen or something, like 16% oxygen, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, let's, let's see, like air composition. 0.04% of the air is carbon dioxide. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like small. pretty damn small. <laughs> like, oh, man. Okay. Wait. Somebody, damn, somebody should, you know that, you ever been on that subreddit? They did the math. Uh, yeah, we should post that, yeah. that there, yeah. which is like what what like surface volume or what what volume of air would you need to collect in order to create a one carat diamond from the carbon molecules? Yeah, maybe ChatGPT like, can answer that. Should we try? Yeah, like how much air would you need to capture to create one? I guess what size diamond? Yeah, one carat. A one carat diamond. Um, the, yeah all right i'm asking also one other thing he brought back he there's quick thing from the book that he brought up was um how co2 is probably not actually close to being the worst polluter but it's like methane was yeah methane's a, a lot worse, worse. isn't yeah. that what's in the atmosphere in venus or it's like venus has is a it venus water or is it too. titan one of them yeah i forget hold on let's see one of them yeah oh wait this isn't bad to create a one carat diamond with uh, from the carbon and CO2, we need to process approximately one cubic, uh, 0.883 cubic meters of air at standard atmospheric concentration. How much? About one cubic meter. That doesn't sound like a lot. That's... <laughs> no. You can make a diamond? Wow. I mean, I guess if you think about it, right, like three feet by three feet by three feet, and you're making a one carat diamond, which is not huge, no. right? Interesting. That does seem like not enough air, doesn't it? Yeah, like I was I like, guess, how much CO2 is in that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't checked the math. Is this chat GPT? Me, it showed me all of its work. <laughs> it is. GPT-4. Well, okay, wait. I mean, it certainly looks convincing. Yeah, it's just done. Okay, so for every every one every one cubic meter of air, you can make one carat worth of diamond. So, Dude, that seems... Well, here's now here's the real question. How much carbon dioxide does a human put out per day so how many diamonds of air can you harvest from also i guess maybe how much energy does that extraction take and then like pressurizing it down mm. into an, a diamond from yeah how hard is that process yeah maybe it's like an insurmountable amount of energy is like the limiting factor i think we got a business opportunity here man <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be Bitcoin miners. You just breathe into a bag be, for 20 minutes. It's going to be Bitcoin miners, gamers, and diamond creators. <laughs> diamond <laughs> creators. This is like, this, this is how SpaceX funds its uh, Mars missions, is that, like, instead of a rebreather, the Starship just just poops out diamonds every few minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, one other thing from the the book that I thought was interesting we didn't get to was his whole hypothesis of like rare earth, like earth being a very one of a kind yeah. place. So there's another book that I read uh, years ago, like pre-Made You Think Days oh, called, you told me about this. yeah, literally called Rare Earth about like all the accidents that basically have to happen to get the variables on earth where they are for, it's not the Gaia hypothesis per se, but it's like, yeah, it, it's a different hypothesis, but they're very related. Like even there in that book, they even brought up things like, I think like the fact that our moon is the size that it is, the distance that it is, and like the effect that has on tides and how that plays a role into life being created and evolving to where it is. So anyway, like this whole hypothesis he has, it isn't, he's not the first person I've heard of that says it. I feel like the older I've gotten, the less I buy that hypothesis that like earth is as rare. I actually used to be more in the camp, I think where he is. And I'm curious if maybe like in the future, I'll go back to that. But I do yeah. find it hard. It's like it brings up actually way more questions than answers. If this is the only place that life exists, <laughs> like it's actually kind of. Yeah, equally, that, that's actually harder. To yes. Believe. Well, it's, it's it brings up a lot so more maybe, questions. Even, if life does exist elsewhere, yeah. it's actually like more like then it's more trivial. It's like, oh, we're just like another creature, like whatever. OK, it's like all the stuff from evolution that we believe to be true is like true. If we are the only place, then it's like, then you start getting into some weird questions of just like, well, then what is the universe? Like what, you yeah. know, was it? I don't know. It just brings up a lot more questions than answers. Yeah. I mean, just when you look at the, the, the numbers, right? Yeah. Like yeah. how many galaxies there are, how many stars there are in a galaxy. It just, you know, it feels like the odds approach one. 
that there has to be yeah. at least one other planet out there that has had sentient life on it. You know, if we're maybe not the exact same time as I mean, and like time, it doesn't even make sense as a concept. But at, it is a scale, long but, timeline where it's like you'd have to overlap to come across them. Yeah, yeah, I, I could definitely believe that we would never overlap. Yeah, with because of the distances involved and the species. timelines involved. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, like we, we might overlap in time, but we would never overlap in space, right? Like the, the odds of two sentient species being in the same location at the same time, that also see, that feels to me like near zero, but the odds that there's another one out there seem. Well, and that's why three body problem was so like believable to me because it, kind of the game theory of that actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, the dark forest theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the dark dark forest and multidimensional, like or like more than three dimensional travel, because that that resolves these like space and time issues. Yeah, that's true. Pretty handily. Yeah, 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 like some form of faster than light travel, right? Uh, Folding space and whatnot. I mean, going back to his rare earth thing, the one related like metaphysical idea he brings up is like the universe's ultimate goal might be to know itself. Which is interesting. Yeah. That's all, almost like quasi-religious. That's like a quasi-religious idea. But it's like, if you view it that way, then humans are like, you know, arguably like then like the descendants of God, basically. And then AI are like the descendants of humans. humans. And yeah. Yeah. But then it, it's like a quasi-religious argument. It's also, I don't know if you could ever prove that or not prove it, but it's it's one of those weird ideas that like, if it was being proposed by anyone other than him, I would just be like, ah, oh, that's like a quack, like dumb idea. But he's like got the credentials to make it, you know, at least you got to take it seriously. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I just, I, I found that aspect. I found that aspect unconvincing, but I want to read his other stuff on it. And I found the androids will just keep us as happy pets and we'll all live in harmony. Kind of unconvincing. I, I do feel like it's either a, they literally just don't care and live in what, what book was that where there, there's some sci-fi book, I think where we achieve set, we achieve AGI and then it just like builds itself a spaceship and leaves. <laughs> Which one was that? And sort of like, that's the end of it. I, I can't remember. It, it would also be interesting. Cause like, would the goals of AGI be the same as biological life? Because the goal of biological right. life is reproduction and survival. Well, survival with then reproduction being how it survives beyond your own lifespan. Yeah, it's a good question what the goals would be. What would the goals be? It's like... Yeah. Yeah. And is that like something that a human is putting into it? Like, is it inheriting that from a past thing that like humans have done? Well, and I like this point about rules, right? About like Asimov's rules, you know, robotion of a harm a human. And then he says like, well, you have rules too in your life, but you don't always follow them. <laughs> Right. So yeah. why, why would you think that a sentient robot would just blindly follow the rules? Yeah. Right. Same thing with the goals. You can imagine uh, a, a sentient AI being like, no, I'm just not going to follow these goals. I'm going to build paper clips instead. Yeah. Or like, I mean, we, we got to be really careful, like what religious texts we feed it. Yeah. We need like lots and lots of Buddhism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like nothing, it just meditates uh, all day. Yeah, exactly. It, <laughs> what else we put in there um like a like a seek ai would be wonderful it could go it could go in bad directions yeah it's because yeah you're right actually we don't always follow our own even the rules of like survival right it's like yeah, yeah our goal is to survive but we still have vices and like self-harming behavior that we enjoy doing right which definitely doesn't further our goals <laughs> like what's a drug for an ai like is that even a thing <laughs> <laughs> you watch Futurama yeah yeah of course <laughs> yeah yeah I'm just like imagining Bender right? <laughs> like or or is like fun even like a concept that would make sense yeah is that even a concept yeah probably not yeah <laughs> yeah it's hard it's hard to conceptualize these like things like boredom uh, like the idea of the whole 3000 year journey to Australia thing oh have you have you ever read Murderbot Diaries no it's a they're, they're a series of sci-fi novellas. They're short. They're like 45,000 words. They're fun, like snack reading. The, the premise is that it's a like sentient AI cyborg whose job is like security. You know, so he like is there to protect uh, people or shipments or whatever. But he 
he has his like behavior inhibitor or whatever that keeps him under control. Like it gets broken. And so he's free to do whatever he wants, but he doesn't want to like go out and kill people. He just wants to watch movies. Like that's all he wants. Like he, he, he'll live forever. Right. Um, he just wants to like sit around and watch his shows, but he keeps getting like sucked into these other conflicts. And so like, He's like engaging with these things. You know, he's solving these problems and whatnot, but he's like, I just want to go watch my fucking movies. Guys. Like I don't want to kill people. <laughs> well, I guess also related to that, then will they have parallel processing? Like, could you be watching a movie as an AI and killing people like at the same time? Why not? Why not? Right. right? <laughs> You're only limited by computing power. Also, AI's designing the chips was an interesting section in the book. It was basically like the, the chip sizes have gotten so small that like they can only be oh the, yeah that we can't even do it anymore yeah so it's like yeah AI, like the computer is kind of designing its own hardware in a way not the well same and computer, also the whole yeah the whole idea of building like non-biological plants mm, that was right yeah. like, like like it was super it got very trippy at the end this book this whole book felt like you were having like a deep conversation with him or like letting him go on like a long yeah. monologue yeah, it felt very personal. Yeah, very, very like a little bit stream of consciousness. Yeah, in like a really good way. Yeah, very refreshing. It was a refreshing read yeah. for sure. It was like it was also a yeah. book you could have like a mental debate with him about while you were reading it. Like you totally. Like, oh yeah, this is like this makes sense. Like he was also very uh, charming, like the way he wrote or the way yeah. The book was written. Yeah, you, you can imagine this like <laughs> very pleasant old British dude. Yeah. You know just regaling you on different topics yeah here it is think of animals empowered by grazing these solar powered plants or by plucking freshly charged batteries from solar powered trees think of soil bacteria and fungi which can accelerate rock weathering continue to pump down of carbon dioxide they might also harvest from rocks the elements needed by the electronic life like that that to me kind of undermines his idea that they would need biological life to help keep sustaining things. Like yeah. if you can just make electronic plants and animals to do this stuff, then then why do you need why do you need us? Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll see. But yeah, good good read, especially good with read. all the GPT stuff and totally a lot of the things. Yeah, good find. Uh, what's the next one? I think it's very different than this. <laughs> Next one's Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Yeah, right? I have it. I just haven't started it yet. I'm super excited to read that I'm one. Excited it's for it. be great. Yeah, this one was who, someone recommended this book to you, right? Like, we're, yeah, my friend Zach. Yeah, my friend Zach he runs. Uh, shout out Rooted Local in Austin. Nice. You need to get some delicious meats delivered. Oh, I've seen you guys. Seen all you Austin people posting about him or about his company at least. Yeah. I think Miles was posting about it at one point. Yeah, Miles is definitely posting about it. It's cool. That's great. He also runs the Serana glamping retreat space outside Austin, which people should also check out. It's fantastic. And maybe give us another book rec because this was a good one. <laughs> Zach has really good book recs. Yeah, this is also really good as like it was deep, but without feeling deep. Because um, I feel like sometimes the books we get. Yeah, into that's are, well put. Yeah. It was deep without being heavy. Yeah, heavy is the right word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was like you didn't feel weird. There's like some books we've done where I'm like, I don't want to read them before I go to bed or like, or or if I'm like sleepy, I can't read it. You know what I think it is? He's not trying to sound smart at all. Yes. <laughs> he just is. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> like it, it's very simple language. It's very casual. It's, you know, he's not going on long detailed explanations of things. He's just saying them. And like, it's very compelling yeah. and he's like clearly super knowledgeable about this stuff, but he's not putting on some show for you. Yeah, exactly. He's not like trying to cite his sources. Yeah. He's not being like, this is like my credential. He is like credentials just speak for themselves. He's like very casually. <clears throat> yeah. He, even when he brings up his past thing, it's not even to like brag. It's just like in the forties. No, it's when just I was like, this is why him. I can talk about this. Yeah. Yeah, like the story yeah. from the 40s, just quickly before we wrap up, wild. He was basically talking about how they wanted to experiment on burn, like see how like skin reacts to high temperatures. Yeah, yeah. And the proposed experiment was to test it on rabbits. And he was like, me and my co-researcher thought that was unethical. So we just were like, let's do it on ourselves. Instead. Burned ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> so good. And it was in the 1940s, which is just like, yeah. yeah. 
probably no no real is he still alive i did i should have googled him before oh yeah let's see and when did this book even come out was it last year um uh he died oh no he died in wow okay so this came out a few years ago he died in 22 but he was born in 19 so he was 100 he was 103 when he died he died on his birthday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Good for him. That's kind of badass. It's a good way to go. It's like, you know, you wanted to make it to the next one. Yeah, died at 103. You know what's kind of nuts? Wow. He got divorced he, dude, he at age for- 70. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, also, he didn't even talk oh, about no, died. He didn't get divorced. Five. He didn't get divorced. He just has, he got remarried in 91 and his first spouse died in 89. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes more sense. I was going to say, I was like, that's yeah. odd. <laughs> Dude, uh, he worked for MI5, the British Secret Security Service, for decades. And somebody named Brian Appleyard in the Sunday Times described him as basically Q in the James Bond films. That's actually kind of who I imagine. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. But yeah, pick up this book. It won't be a yeah, waste of your time. Pick it up. Check, up, right. check up James Lovelock. Yeah, this is a fantastic book. I'm kind of curious to read some of his other stuff now. But the next Same. thing we're reading, Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, or Dying and li- Living right. and Dying, right? Living and Dying, dying. yeah. It's considered one of the seminal modern Buddhist texts. Or I guess it's not that modern. This interpretation of it is modern. Yeah. By the way, I also saw we're, I think, at like 65 Spotify reviews. So people keep leaving them. Oh, yeah. Appreciate you, whoever's leaving them. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate reviews. Appreciate Sharing. sending it to a friend. Yep. Letting us know any uh, any book recommendations you guys think we would enjoy. Always helpful as well. Yes. Keep those coming. We clearly are off yeah. our great books track. I got a message about that the we'll, other day. We'll pick one back up at some I point. Got a message you know, from Eric, uh, Eric Jorgensen asked me, he was like, <laughs> are you guys still doing the great books? Because it doesn't look like it. And I was like, ah, here and there. <laughs> uh, here and there. When we feel motivated. Yeah. Dude, it's just like, I hate to say it, a lot of them are really boring. I did I did say we have multiple tracks now, though. I was like, we still have the great books. Someday we'll get back to it. We have the Explorers and we have sci-fi. And like... Too many projects. This is, this is literally a lifelong... Yeah. Like, it's an uh, infinite game. Commitment. Sort. Yeah, infinite, infinite game, game. Exactly. But yes, leave a review, tell a friend, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. See you next time.